This is Lions, Towers, and Shields, episode 39, and as you may have noticed, I am not Shelley Brisbane. I am your guest host, Nathan Alderman, but Shelley is joining us to haunt these proceedings, as she has in the past, along with our very special guest, Annette Weirstra. Hello, Annette. How are you? I am doing well, and I also brought with me my black cat, which is seasonally appropriate. Also known as the Boris Karloff Starter Kit. Exactly. Shelly, how are you doing? Any any feline companions for you this evening? No, my orange cat is outside the door on an ottoman watching whatever my husband is watching while we podcast about movies with cats and dogs in them. In the, in them. Okay, oh. Shelly, you need to talk to your orange cat. It is just not in the spirit of the season. <laughs> Apparently mm-hmm. not. I need to dye him or something. Uh, actually, His name no, is Jack, if that helps you at all. Orange That's true. He could be a pumpkin. Black. Your orange cat right? with my black cat is actually perfect. And, and his name seasonal. is Jack. You know, we can call oh, him Jack-o'-lantern if need be. Well, folks, it is the spooky season once again, and one of these years we are going to do a Halloween-themed movie that does not involve Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Why? This is not one of those years. Tonight we will be talking about The Body Snatcher from 1945, produced by the great Val Luton. Uh, I wish we had Chili's friend Adam Roach here, because the way he says Val Luton is just incomparable, and I can never compete with it. (laughs) Um, But produced by the great Val Luton, directed by a guy you may have heard of called Robert Wise, who's known for such bone-chilling horror films as The Sound of Music. (laughs) Um, Hey, it's it's a horror film to me. And uh, starring the great Boris Karloff in a performance that, if you haven't seen it, might be one of the best performances he's ever given, might be one of the better performances you will see in a movie. But we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, It's based on the Robert Louis Stevenson short story. If you check the show notes, we'll include a link to a wonderfully spooky YouTube file where the great Christopher Lee reads the original story by Robert Louis Stevenson. Um, But tonight we are talking about 1945's movie adaptation. Uh, So I wanted to start off by asking Shelley and Annette, what experience, if any, do you guys have with the films of Val Luton? I've seen Cat People, uh, maybe one or two others. And I listened, we we mentioned Adam Roach. He did a great uh, sort of podcast biography of Val Luton. And I will include a link to that because I learned so much more about Luton than I I knew before. I knew that, in, and I'm sure, Nathan, you'll talk about it, but the influence that he had on RKO movies in the 40s and specifically the horror genre. So I, I didn't know him as an auteur. I just knew there's a couple of spooky movies that Val Luton had made. And so I was super glad to add this to my list of of, uh, of knowledge of, of Val's work. And what about you, Annette? Have you seen any Val Luton movies? Well, you know that I haven't seen... I'm the person here to be like, I know nothing about these old movies. It has a cat in it. I'm here. Was, was the... Is was that it, how wait, we taught you into the it? There's a cat movie? in it? Yeah. Ex- no, that actually was just a fortunate, fortunate, uh, fortunate thing. The cat... People wasn't the movie we watched last year. We watched no. the Black Cat in it. Cat People is a the black much cat. better movie than the Black Cat. Yeah, and I liked the I Black Cat. Really, I, I like the Black Cat. But Val Luton's movies are incredible because they are they are schlock transformed into art. So at the time that RKO brought Val Luton along, he had been an assistant to David O. Selznick, um, but he had come to 
basically take over more and more of the production duties until he was practically ready to be a producer himself. He had been a prolific writer. He had written novels under the pen name Carlos Keith. And hey, what do you know? Carlos Keith is one of the listed screenwriters for this film. Um, But RKO hired him in 1941, fresh off two very expensive failures you may or may not have heard of, Citizen Kane and The Magnificent Ambersons by a guy named Orson Welles. Those movies, although great in hindsight, bombed at the box office and RKO was in a deep financial hole. So they made a deal with Val Luton. They said, we will give you complete creative freedom, but we will also give you a postage stamp-sized budget and very little time. Go make something that will make a lot of money. And Val Luton said, boy, will I. He started out a string of really incredible, spooky, elegant horror films that still hold up today, starting with Cat People, then I Walked with a Zombie, uh, The Leopard Man, Curse of the Cat People, which is where they say, let's bring back the entire original cast and do a direct sequel, except now instead of being a movie about literal cat people, it's a heart-rending fable about a troubled child. Um and from there, he went on to, to Stranger and More Wonderful Things, including this, the first released film of three movies he made with Boris Karloff. Luton was always fighting with the, the middle managers at his studio who always wanted him to go for cheap schlock over the beautiful, elegant, psychologically complex films that he would make. Um, and he was saddled with a former monster guy from Universal who took advantage of the fact that Boris Karloff was sick to death of being worked half to death by Universal in increasingly terrible parts to lure him with a fat payday over to RKO. Uh, This guy, the appropriately named Jack Gross, thought he'd just crank out some cheesy horror movies with Boris Karloff, but Val Luton met Boris Karloff, again, as we mentioned in our episode on The Black Cat, maybe one of the nicest guys in show business, and decided, this guy's awesome, I'm going to write incredible characters for him to play. And that's how we get to The Body Snatcher, which is loosely based on the story of the grave robbers Burke and Hare, who, when they couldn't find enough graves to supply medical students in Edinburgh in the uh, 1800s, took to murdering people and then saying, oh, hey, we've got this convenient corpse. Would you like to buy it off us? Um, And so in this case, um, Boris Karloff plays the sinister John Gray, a cabman with a grisly side hustle in a tale of medical students, an arrogant doctor, grave robbery and murder in 1800s Edinburgh. And it's it's pretty great. It's uh, based on the Robert Robert Louis Stevenson story. And that's what's funny about it, because I could have sworn I hadn't seen this movie before. But once I started watching it, I was like, I've either read the original or I've seen this movie at some point back in the day. And I'm not a horror movie person as in, oh, I won't seek out a movie that is a horror movie. But the the thing about this movie is that there's so much going on. I mean, sure, there's horror. I mean, there's corpses and stuff. I guess that's horror, you know. But <laughs> there's a lot of character stuff going on. There's a lot of really interest, surprisingly interesting writing going on. And, of course, Boris Karloff's incredible performance. So even if you're not a horror person, this is a, a really great choice to, I don't know, indoctrinate somebody into uh, 40s horror or just sort of say, hey, maybe there's something about a movie that's in the horror genre that, that you would not have expected there to be. Yeah, Luton doesn't so much make horror movies as you'd think of them. He makes complex dramas that are really intense and 
beautifully filmed and character driven that happened to have creepy elements in them. Uh, especially he started off more straight horror with cat people and yeah. sort of moved more toward the spooky drama end of the spectrum as he went on. And this is definitely more toward that spooky drama end of the spectrum. But the r- central relationship between Karloff's John Gray and Henry Danielle as uh, Toddy McFarlane, the, the wealthy and privileged doctor on whom Gray has a slimy hold from some past dirty deeds is really the core of this film and so fascinating and well done. Uh, Unfortunately, they seem to have blown their entire acting budget on Boris and Henry because (laughs) almost no one else in this movie is doing a good job. Uh, Sorry, Bella. Bella was in bad shape when he made this film. It's just sad to see Bella at this point because he's his first of all his, very, his part is very small, and and Bella had all sorts of problems which we can get into, uh, and and it's an interesting character and you kind of wonder what his arc is going to be because he does have a presence Bella does, but if you've I don't know if you've seen the Black Cat or Dracula or any of the early thirties Lugosi movies and then you see this you're just like oh my God what's what's happened to this guy. Yeah, I I wouldn't call it a horror really at all. Um, there are creepy elements of it, and like you know, lots of like nighttime walking around in the dark, and so it's spooky is the right word. I think spooky is correct. I would not call it a horror movie per se. Um, yeah, I was most captivated because like as soon as you go grave robbing and I, I sort of suspected with the body snatching that it was going to go into Birkin hair. And I am utterly fascinated by the story. The story, it's like terrible, but also almost inevitable based on the situation that was happening. And uh, yeah, so I was like, oh, I'm here for this to sort of see their take on Birkin hair. And yeah, so a little bit more background, Birkin hair were supplying, they were grave robbers supplying a demand for corpses at a time when it was very hard for medical schools to get cadavers. Uh, The laws made that incredibly difficult. So, of course, the free market uh, picked up the slack. Edinburgh is the home of Adam Smith, he of the Invisible Hand fame, and boy, did that Invisible (laughs) Hand start uh, snatching some bodies. It's a very good Um, example. So, yeah, they were caught... They were punished. The doctor for whom they procured all these corpses, some fresher than others, uh, escaped. And as they mentioned very pointedly in the movie, lived the life of a gentleman and faced almost no consequences for the rest of his life, while the lower class guys took the fall for him. Um, One was killed at the gallows, and I think the other was run out of town, never to be seen again. Not until this movie, anyway. True. But so... Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about Karloff's performance as John Gray. What are what are your guys what are you guys impressions of John Gray and Karloff's performance of him in this film? I love it. Uh, first of all, I'm a big Karloff fan. I just I think almost anything he does is made better and more interesting by what he does. And it's it's worth noting that that most people know Karloff for his horror performances as they should, as well as his voicing the Grinch who stole Christmas and that sort of thing. Karloff did in the 30s other kinds of roles. Sometimes he was a butler, sometimes he was a gentleman. He he always had a presence in a movie that he was in. This performance is so incredible because he's obviously a sinister figure. And I think you know that from very early on, although when you first meet him, he's not. He's actually very kind to a child in the first first time that you see him. But he he plays the nuances of 
a character that you know to be sinister and that you know to be wary of, uh, and also somebody who's playing psychological games with his victim, Toddy, uh, in such nuanced and such interesting ways. And he's in command of whatever scene he's in. And even when you find out that for sure that Karloff is not a nice guy, he's the person that you're watching the entire time, both the way he speaks and the physicality of his his face and the way Luton lights him as well are just, it's just such a masterful, masterful performance. And I, I agree that he's by far the, the best actor in the movie and that his relationship with Toddy and, and their acting together is the best thing in the movie. But I think even if he were surrounded by other actors of, of, of his quality, I, I still think he'd stand out. Yeah, he uh, is like kind of the reason I think I'll remember the movie. I'll sort of forget everyone else, even, sorry, Toddy. I'll probably forget about you. Maybe I might remember Mr. Fetz because he's very <laughs> handsome and I can be swayed by a pretty face. And that's all he's got to offer. You know, that is it. Uh, yes. But as I sent a message to Nathan, I was like, what have you got me watching? He killed a spoiler. Yes. If, if you are one of the people who Googles um, does the dog die, we have some bad news for you. <laughs> yes. Oh, and I, I was like, oh, no. And, you know. Nathan promised he would be nice to cats. He knows how I operate. But and also you told me a very nice tale about the actor dog, uh, whereas the poor no, character dog. No, not the dog. actor dog. No. The, the, so in the film, there is a yes. dog named, um, I forget what they, what they call the dog, but the dog oh. faithfully stays by its dead owner's grave uh, in Greyfriar oh, Cemetery. Okay. I get In real life. Now. In Edinburgh, there is a famous dog named Greyfriars Bobby who did Aww. that. For years, he stayed and would not move from his dead owner's grave. People fed him. They took care of him. He became a beloved civic institution. And if you go to Edinburgh today, outside Greyfriars Cemetery, and I know because I've, I've been lucky enough to be there, there is an adorable life-size statue of a cute little Scotty dog, Greyfriars Bobby. So Greyfriars Bobby's cinematic dupe double gets uh buys it at the end of Boris Karloff's shovel, but in real life, the dog survived, lived a, a long life, and was beloved and, and probably petted and, and treated well by everyone who met him. And in the movie, he dies in shadow. You so, you know for certain that he's dead. You right. don't see him on screen. It's true. You just like you just understand he is dead, so you don't have to see it. Um, There's some foley work you know, that makes you go, land. "Oh, that's not good." <laughs> yeah, Ugh, poor yeah. pop. But uh, yes, aside from that, uh, but I mean, I have remember reading a book about writing screenplays, and the best way to establish someone as villainous is to have them kill a dog because. That is like the worst crime, aside from children, ch children and dogs. Um, nobody cares if if they. I care. Nobody cares if they kill the cat. That's not particularly vi villainous. But when you kill the dog, it establishes you as very evil. But I think at the same time, he gets to have these moments where he is really nice to that little girl. Although part of me was wondering if he's going to kill her too. Uh, I'm I think you're side. meant to wonder that. But also, <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, poor kid. But also the, the horse and the cat. And even when he's talking to um, McFarland's wife in the room at later on in the movie, he's kind of charming to her, but she knows the entire situation. So she doesn't trust him and she knows what he does. So she doesn't trust him. But I 
feel that giving that sort of like level levels, he's not completely dark and villainous, even though he is, you know, a grape rubber. He's a, a sympathetic like kind it. of evil because you, you, the movie and John Gray are both very aware <laughs> of class. He is John Gray is mm-hmm. painfully aware of his lower class status and his method of revenge is to make sure everyone he interacts with knows it too. He delights in playing up that oh I'm just a humble lowly servant while subtly manipulating people to do what he wants them to do, whether he's getting uh, Toddy McFarlane to buy him a drink in the pub by being like, oh, yeah, we're old pals. Toddy's going to do this because he's my my buddy. Or the first time he meets uh, Toddy McFarlane's young protege, Donald Fetties, the the innocent himbo drawn into this sordid, sordid world of grave robbing. Um, notice how he while playing subservient on the surface is basically ordering Fetties around. He's the guy saying, oh, well, surely you'll want to go to that desk and enter this this entry for this body I brought you. And then I think you'll find that the money's in that cabinet. He's, he's playing, oh, I'm just the lowly guy on the totem pole, but he is loving every second of twisting the knife and watching people jump when he says so. And he, he actually spells that out later in the movie, and in a lesser film, that would be a little too much. But Karloff delivers that moment with such poignance and such creepy, almost you know romantic overtures toward Henry Danielle, you know, I, I wouldn't be a man if I couldn't do this to you. I, I, I need you to stay alive so that I can keep doing this to you because I need this. It's for a 1945 film. It is dark, messed up and really interesting. Well, it helps that we don't have a lot of sympathy, any sympathy at all for, for Toddy because he's he's a jerk. He has terrible bedside manner with the child. He is, you know, officious and, and awful. We, we don't know how bad he is to begin with. But by the time that we find out more about his relationship with John Gray, we're not in particular sympathy with him. And, and what's great about the way the movie plays out, it's so well paced, is that before you understand the depth of their relationship and both how far back it goes and what's happening in the current time, you've already established that your your sympathies are more with Karloff because Karloff is kind of playing with his food. And I also think, and I, this is sort of not apparent to me as early in the movie, but, but about the middle, about two thirds of the way through the movie, there's this sort of weird homoerotic tinge about it that I was just like, mm-hmm. I don't know quite what to do with it, but I like that. I, f- I feel like it's it's puts you on edge. And I think it certainly puts Toddy on edge. Yeah, there's definitely some psychosexual stuff going on. And, and we should mention Henry Danielle, who plays uh, Toddy McFarlane. He hates that name, which is why John Gray always calls him Toddy in a very sly, mocking, sing-song way. Um, so Henry Danielle was a, an acclaimed character actor, and apparently this was not a difficult role for him because in real life, Henry Danielle was also a guy who was both really good at his job and a total jerk to everyone around him. <laughs> he was in surprising. a lot of movies too playing a sort of garden variety villain or at least a jerk even if he wasn't a villain uh, in fact we saw him in the Philadelphia story not long ago and he's the kind of guy if you've watched a lot of Hollywood movies of this era you've seen him uh, and I would argue that this is one of his more interesting performances not only because of what he does but because what he's given to do because in a lot of cases he's just as in Philadelphia story he's sort of a a rich guy who 
is causing action to happen, but you aren't actually thinking about him a lot when he's on screen, or sometimes he's a you know straight up military villain, or he's just a a guy that you don't have any sympathy with. He's a he's a rich guy often, uh, but in this movie, all the stuff that Boris Karloff is doing to him and all the things you're learning about his past make him super interesting and up to and including and we can we can talk about this later when we get to her but the relationship that he has with the person we think is his maid that turns out to be his wife who i i think is kind of underrated if we talk about who's who's not who is who is and isn't good in this movie i th- i think the woman who plays his wife is actually quite good oh yeah she's terrific and such an interesting character she could be just a prop and they do sort of do that weird thing at like Right at the end of the movie, she's like, oh, yeah, did I mention I have psychic powers and I I perceive a premonition of doom? I I haven't mentioned this before. I won't mention it again, but it's just throwing that out there. Uh, But, yeah, the fact that that they give her this double life that she has to play and they they let her express her frustration with that and, and her love for him. She kind of humanizes him so that he's not a complete unredeemable jerk. And that element lets uh, Edith Atwater was the actress's name, lets her be more of a person and less of just, hello, I am a wife and or slash mother here to be a wife and or slash mother beep boop. Well, and she didn't she didn't have many more film roles. I think this might have been her last film role. She and and the character as introduced, you think she's his servant or his maid. And it turns out she's his wife. And that's it's. It's kept secret for reasons that aren't made clear, but I think it has to do with uh, classism in the in the UK in the 1830s, which is sort of fascinating because they don't really talk about it. But because there's that initial relationship where she's introduced, she's entering people into the house and just performing as a servant, and then later you see them married, and they have what often you don't see in in marriage relationships in or even just romantic relationships in this era. You have this sort of ease with one another. She and Toddy, she and Henry Daniel work well together as a team. The thing that startles you because you like her is that even after you know who she is in his life, it was a little startling to me that she knew everything about what was going on. She's not participating, but she is fully aware. There's no point at which Fetis says to her, uh, can I tell you what terrible things her husband is doing? Because she's you know, she's basically there when Gray is taunting her husband and she either had a relationship with Gray or they were in the same social circle at some point because they're all part of the same, you know, team or friend group from way back. I wondered if they all like that McFarlane, Toddy, I'm just going to call him Toddy, if Toddy had been of a lower class and managed to educate himself out of it somehow and that's why he couldn't show his wife off because she was of the wrong class but she sort of predated his rise like there i feel like there's no actual textual visual evidence for this in the movie but that's kind of like i it felt to me like they were all sort of part of the same community grew up together and he made good and this is part of the secret and that's part of why there's this tension Obviously, I've got a lot of headcanon around this, but that's part of the tension is he's got to hold this secret. And at the same time, he knows he can benefit from it and holds the whole, well, they didn't, they did not uh, prosecute Dr. Knox in the Burke and Hare case. Therefore, I will be like 
safe and you will not, which is a thing that kind of holds his power over Gray when Gray tries to threaten him. And they, they touch on something here that is emphasized more heavily in the original story. In the original story, uh, McFarlane and Fetty's are m- closer to contemporaries. It's not that McFarlane is the mentor and Fetty's is the student. They're both students. McFarlane's a little more experienced, and McFarlane gets drags Fetty's into this sordid life and makes him his accomplice in covering up uh, a murder or two by saying, "Like, look, be a man. You, you gotta, you gotta sack up, dude." Basically, and they touch on that a little bit in the movie. The, this idea that they they try to warp Fetty's and his morality by appealing to his masculinity and saying, you know, if you, you got to be tough to do this stuff, you know, there's a lot of rationalizing what people do in this movie. And especially at the end when, um, so spoiler alert, uh, Toddy has dispatched Boris Karloff um, and then here's, oh, hey, there's a, somebody just died. Their body's buried in this remote cemetery near where I'm drinking. And it's like he's an addict. He he's bla- he blamed everything on John Gray when Gray was alive. But now that Gray is dead, you, you realize this guy was always going to be a body thief. He was always going to take, you know, steal these bodies and justify it to himself. It wasn't Gray's evil influence. It was Toddy all along. Um, and I thought that was interesting to see. Well, and to me, that's the most shocking part of the movie when not well, first of all, when he just, as you say, I, th- I think addict is an apt way to put it, because when he is in the pub and these people are coming in and they're sad because somebody that they love has died, he immediately is like, let's go get it. And then the next shocking part is Fedez goes after him. You think he's probably going to try and stop him, but he pretty quickly he's shoveling the grave open so that he can help. And it's it's. That's that's the part that's sort of startling to me because Fetis's earlier motivations are put down to his trying to help this little girl who can't walk. And if only McFarlane has a body uh, where he can look at the spine and sort of compare it to this little girl's spine, then he'll be able to do surgery for her. So Fetis is like, oh, all right, it's fine. But but now Fetis, who has, you know, pretty much said, oh, yeah, I can I can quit anytime I want to. But but I just need to tell the doctor that the little girl is going to walk. And then he he goes back into the same situation. He goes back with him. And that's the part that just just startled me. And is, that's the creepiest part of the movie, that whole thing. And that whole carriage ride where there's a body is between them. Oh, oh no. God. A carriage ride is the No, it's best great. I love it. Because, uh, yeah, that point where you're like, why are you putting the body in between you? And then the 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 ghost of Grey yep. or the hallucination or however you interpret it, but uh, like that he's slowly losing his mind and um, seeing Grey in between them. And then the way they 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 film that um, with him literally seeing like you are also seeing the face of Grey. And I love I actually love that because it's like. It's a, it's like a really weird decision from the character's point of view to put the body in between them and just sort of ride it's along too with small. That. It's it's too small a carriage. Uh, it wasn't designed to carry cargo, yeah. so they have to prop the body up between them. <laughs> but yeah, from the visual perspective and the narrative perspective, it's a great right. detail. And that scene highlights something I really yeah, love, I love about it. this film is the use of sound. Luton loved to use sound in his movies. In Cat People, there's an incredible scare that that hits you thanks to the sound of the brakes on a bus. Um, and here, 
they use sound in such interesting ways. In that final sequence, you've got Karloff, you know, whispering, never get rid of me, never get rid of me, never get rid of me, never get rid of me. Um, earlier, when Fetty's is tormented by guilt because he knows that Karloff has murdered an innocent street singer to provide the body that will help them do the operation that'll save the little girl, you hear her singing rise ghostly on the soundtrack. And then there's just the sound of Gray's cab. They do a great job from the almost the start of the movie of equating that sound, the ominous clip-clop, clip-clop of the, the hooves with oncoming danger or death. I would also argue that as, as weird as it is that we find out toward the very end that Meg has some sort of powers of a divination, uh, that is the one place in the movie where the sort of lyricism of uh, the the fact that you know Stevenson was a, a, a Scottish writer is is apparent, and I, I made a mental note to myself that I kind of wanted to go back and read the original story because there is a sort of a lyric quality and a rhythmic quality to some of the writing, mostly the sound, as you were saying, Nathan. But in a few cases, like when Meg talks about what she's seen and how she sees that that Toddy and Gray are both sort of about to about to meet their maker, there's this lyricism that makes me think it would have been interesting if that had been more present throughout the rest of the movie. And it's and I think it's also apparent in the, the street singer because of the songs she sings and the way her voice is wafted across scenes, both before she dies, because she's in several scenes before she's killed, and then, of course, the scene when she's, she's finally dispatched. Yes, that is one of two scenes in this film that I think are indelible. The, the carriage ride at the end, weirdly, it doesn't do it for me, but I think that's just because I've already been creeped out by two of the scenes that came before it. In every Val Luton film, there's always at least one, maybe more terrifying set pieces or gorgeous, creepy shots. And here, one of the most frightening and beautiful scenes in the movie is a single, uninterrupted take. The camera's completely still. The, the street singer is walking at night out under a tunnel and into the darkness and the rain, singing as she goes. Even when she vanishes from sight, you hear her singing. And then John Gray's cab follows her into the shadow. Clip, clop, clip, clop, clip, clop, clip, clop. And it disappears as well. And you hear her singing, you hear her singing, and then you hear a brief sound as if a hand has gone over her mouth and then absolutely nothing and several seconds of dead silence. Yeah, it's great. Well, and I actually feel the same way about, and I, I mentioned it before, but when, when the dog is killed in shadow, the way they have the dog barking and growling, and then you hear what, I understand that a lot of times in, in Foley work, uh, what they do is they take a, a knife and, you know, hack apart a grapefruit or a cantaloupe or something like that. And that's kind of what it sounds like. But it's very redolent of what the sound is actually supposed to be, which is super creepy. Oh, and then... I will say, for, for as rough as Bela Lugosi is in this movie, poor guy, without him, I think the movie wouldn't have its single best scene. So Bela Lugosi's character, a Hungarian medical assistant, uh, who they, I think in the movie they claim that he's from Spain, which, you know, is totally common in 1830s Edinburgh to have a Spanish-Hungarian sure, why not? Um, working in your medical school. <laughs> he gets wind that Karloff's a murderer and goes to blackmail him at his house. And Karloff plays it terrifyingly brilliantly. He says, you want money? Sure, here's money. Hey, have a drink. Have another drink. Have some more booze. Here's my best booze. Drink more of it. Drink all you like. And you notice that Karloff is barely sipping his. Um, and then 
he basically talks Bela Lugosi quietly, softly, soothingly through his own murder, which is just... If you've seen Saving Private Ryan, that scene where the American soldier and the German soldier are fighting in the abandoned house and the German soldier is pushing the knife into the American soldier's heart while saying, shh, shh. And, and Lugosi is not poisoned. Okay, so we, we should – because that's sort of the standard trope. You think, well, have a drink. It's clear that Karloff wants him gone. And so you figure, well, he's going to poison the liquor. That's not at all what happens. I didn't think that, actually, because he's such a physical it's, murderer. It's true. I was waiting for him to come up behind and but go they like, made such a point and break his neck of or the something. Drinks and he, you know, he pours him out, pours him out right in him. front of Bella. And yeah. Yeah. But he, he takes a drink, too. Yeah, he's just softening Bella up. But it's when he reaches for his mouth and Bella moves to, to push Karloff's hand away. And Karloff says... What are you doing? Don't push my hand away. I can't show you if you push my hand away. Oh. In my imagination, when I, when I first saw the movie, my memory made that scene even creepier than it actually turns out to be in real life, where almost immediately you get a pair of various obvious stuntmen tussling. But still, just that, that last moment where he's like, don't push my hand away. How can I show you? And he's so gentle and kind about it. Oh, it's that scene stuck with me. And the thing about Bella's mm-hmm. character, and they they don't say this, but the impression my my sort of headcanon is that Bella is that the character he play Joseph is his name. Sorry, I was forgetting for a minute. My headcanon is that Joseph may not be have all of his mental faculties. So it's not just that Bella, the actor, is having trouble, but they've and maybe that they created the character in this way in order to accommodate Bella's limitations but he he gives the impression of being somewhat slow-witted in general and the 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 obvious greed that he comes to Karloff's he comes to John Gray's home and he basically says you know i i've i want some money i've got you i know what you are and he thinks i've won there's no way that i can lose i've got him and then uh, John Gray doesn't even put up a fight. He says, would you like some money? Here you go. And Bella can't believe his good fortune. And then he starts to drink. And John Gray always understands with the people he's dealing with what psychological pressure or what what to say to them to move them into the position that he wants them to be, which is why he's so effective with Toddy, because he does the same kind of tricks on Toddy, but he uses different methods because Toddy's a very different person than Joseph is. Yeah, and I, I love that scene between Toddy and Boris in the alehouse where it's just the two of them. So Toddy suffered a professional setback. He's he's angry. He, he this procedure should have worked and it does not appear to have worked. And he actually wants Gray there. He wants to like have somebody he can talk down to to boost his ego up. And Gray humors him just long enough to to leave him vulnerable for Gray to metaphorically shove in the knife. And if you watch that scene with the sound off, you can tell who's winning and who's losing the argument just from the pacing of the editing. Robert Wise started out as an editor, and you can watch and see how well that scene is cut so that Karloff dominates the conversation, dominates the takes, how every you know action is perfectly matched, every cut happens at the exact right time to build the tension and increase the pacing of their argument. It's it's a wonderfully edited sequence and a great reminder that 
you know, Wise is still finding his footing as a director. There are some performances here, and and he barely had an, any time or money to make this movie. There are some performances here. <clears throat> Russell Wade is Donald Fetty's <laughs> um, that are non-existent. They're so bad, and there are scenes where clearly it's like, well, they only had a this much money for lighting, so they just like some scenes are just flat, ugly lighting that shows off cheap-looking sets, and then some scenes are the most incredibly gorgeous chiaroscuro cinematography with beautiful shadows. They had to pick their moments, but they picked them really well. They absolutely did, and uh, just a reminder for longtime Lions, Towers, and Shields fans, of which I'm sure there are many, the very first movie we talked about in this series was The Setup, which is Robert Wise's boxing movie from 1949, so just four years after this, and he continues to use editing to great effect, and also shadow. There's a lot of similarities in terms of there's a lot of, of street scenes and things that happen at night and shadows, but also because that movie is a boxing movie, there's a lot of quick editing between people that are in physical combat. So yeah, Wise continues to grow as a director, but he's using the editing chops that he was uh, learning in the early 40s before he started directing. I want to say this was only the second film he directed. He was brought in on Curse of the Cat People. They, they initially had another director, a talented uh, newsreel director, who was doing great work, but he was doing it really slowly. And they were behind on you know, they again, Luton had to work with tiny budgets. We're talking like seventy-five thousand dollars, a hundred and fifty if he was lucky, um, and like a month maybe to shoot a movie, uh, if that. So they were running way behind. So they basically dragged Wise out of the editing suite and shoved him into the director's chair. And the movie's terrific. Curse of the Cat People, if you ever get a chance to see it, it's like nothing you've ever seen. It is weird and beautiful and kind of presages the... It's like a mashup of Terry Gilliam and Jean Renoir um, in really interesting ways. Um, And you can't tell where one director takes over and another, another begins. But this film, you can tell he's still a rookie, but he's a talented rookie. There are beautiful compositions. That editing is great. He's already learning a lot. Yeah, IMDb has it listed as his third full director, uh, f- f- full outing as director, and obviously we don't know what you know actually happened in other movies, but yeah, clearly it's at the beginning of his career, and it just seems like such a challenging kind of film to do that early in one's career. I mean, you know, to, to, you'd think setting up romantic comedies or, or dramas where people are talking at each other, the whole movie would, would kind of be a more natural fit. But whether whether it was Luton's faith in him or the fact that he knew Wise's skill as an editor or not, it, it was a good call. It was. And, oh, I see, Mamzelle Fifi, which was another Luton picture uh, outside the horror realm that, that bombed badly. Um, they, they didn't quite have the budget they needed to pull off a period piece. Um, but yeah, I, I will always have beef with Robert Wise and his fellow um, Luton protege, Mark Robeson, because Luton literally sacrificed his career to give these guys their big breaks. And when they were big deal directors and they were starting a production company with him, they threw him under the bus. I believe if Adam Roche's account is correct, on his daughter's wedding day, knowing he had a heart condition, they threw him under the bus uh, when he was giving them good advice that they didn't want to listen to. Uh, and I will never, ever forgive the, either of those men for that, even though they both went on to have to direct a lot of great movies and, in Robert Wise's case, also The Sound of Music. <laughs> not cool, Robert Wise. Not cool. Definitely not cool. 
No. But if you do, I will say briefly, if you do like Robert Wise and you like his direction in this film and you haven't seen his film The Haunting from 1963, which was his homage to Luton and the films that they made together, you got to see The Haunting. It has one of my favorite jump scares in all of cinema. It literally, when the first time I saw it, made me jump up off my couch. And it is not a ghastly corpse. It is not a terrifying ghost. It is just a really well-placed surprise. Do not see the 1999 remake where a fireplace eats Owen Wilson's head. Noted. Um I would like to discuss the storyline that we haven't really discussed, which is the one I profoundly don't care about, which is the little girl. (laughs) I may be heartless, but I'm like, I don't care what happens to her. I can see what's going to happen. And it's going to be like uh, a little bit of that. um, Oh, she's in a wheelchair and we must heal her. And then everything. And it's like, oh, so sad. She's in a wheelchair. We're going to heal her. Blah. I didn't care. And she's also annoying. But. I'm like I didn't care about that storyline, and is I realized what they were doing with it to propel the plot forward and to bring Fet Fetes in Boba uh, Fetties. But I was like, <laughs> sure, why not Boba Fetty? Yeah, yeah. Bobo Fetties. They 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 act at one another in that plot line. So the mother is not very interesting. The little girl is annoying. Yeah. Fetes like, is care. you could all die. Yeah, yeah it's just like, like okay. I will say the only point at which I really sympathize with that girl is when uh, Toddy is being such an asshole when he's when he initially meets her and basically says, "You're bothering me. Get up and walk, you dumb rotten kid." But they're all still acting yeah. in each other. At no point does the mother go, now look, or let's go. This is crappy. Uh, or Fetas either. I mean, he he basically says, all right, I'll, you know, the doctor says, why don't you deal with him, deal with her? And Fetas does. But but nobody in that scene is engaging with what else is happening in that scene except the, the little kid because the doctor is being a jerk. And that's the point at which I go, oh, well, this plot line exists in order to make us feel some kind of way and in order to give Fedez motivation to be involved in the doctor's terrible business to begin with. But it doesn't convince me, right? Like, I'm like, I don't know. Does it? Like, I feel like uh, it, it could have been done in a different way, but it didn't seem very motivating to him. I think it's more supposed to be motivating to the audience. You're supposed to have a reason to care why they need yeah. this body and like a, a, a moral dilemma <laughs> around it. So okay. it's not just like they're hor- – it's one thing to be like, hey, you need a body? I killed a person. Here's a body. It's another to be like, you need this body because you you're trying save to save someone girl. else's life. Yeah. And so you just yeah. traded so- someone else's life for this little girl's. Was it worth it? I have a problem with period piece no. medicine anyway, because it's almost always so terrible, yeah. especially anything to do with mental health, but physical health is weird. So so McFarlane needs a body because in order to look at this, the way the little girl's spine is messed up, which he can somehow tell, even though he never touches the kid, uh, he, he needs basically a comparison chart. So he needs another body of an adult woman, as it turns out, uh, to... But she was she small. was like fifteen when she made this movie, I think. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. But even so, uh, so so that's the premise that we're operating on: is that this guy needs a physical specimen in order to to do the operation uh, on this little girl. And it's like, okay, well, that is a sorry state of medicine. Uh, even if we accept that that is the case, let's just go ahead and do that and go ew. And then I I also just it made me think of just now. I like the medical. St- student who has the fixation on the arm. Oh, look, he's got an arm he can play with. <laughs> That's an element from the original story. Yeah, the, the students jockeying for, for various Bar- parts. Body parts. 
Right. I will say that I thought the little girl was a better actor than Fetty's. <laughs> Everyone in this movie is a better actor than Fetty's. He's the, the moments where he is reading dialogue that is clearly meant to be pronounced with a Scottish accent in the flattest American accent possible. Unintentional comedy. Just bad casting right there, too. Well, I think a couple of times he says I or something like that. And you're like, wait, what? What do you stop it? Just stop doing that. <laughs> Yeah, um, like Karloff and Danielle, they can pull it off because at least they've got like credible British accents. But yeah, um, I will also say. But I think because you you have like those two actors going really well together and then you have this other storyline that just doesn't jive and fails to get my sympathy, that's kind of a major problem in the movie where it's like, I really, really want to think you're amazing, but I'm just so profoundly disinterested in this one major plot point that when that doesn't work it's sort of like the motivation for that one key character sort of falls apart a bit so let's get back to the know. body snatcher stop talking Maybe about the I'm cute little girl in the wheelchair <laughs> yeah so it's like i i don't care about that i want to hear more about like what and i get that they're trying to do what i want them to do which is drive forward why what would motivate people to go and steal bodies or even murder to get bodies? Uh, because that was a problem at that time for, for scientists and for doctors to sort of like be able to figure out what's happening. And they needed to know for science to move forward. It was really important. And this apparently is how they dealt with it. So like they wanted to like really get that urgency around and the importance of it. But I think because I didn't care about that particular story it it was hard for me to like it, it just then it just becomes like oh well they're stealing bodies and it sort of loses a little of that drive for me yeah um luton was a very lonely isolated child himself and there's a thread that that weaves in and out of his films of <laughs> children who have a lot of burdens placed upon them and are, are struggling and are in pain and you know in his movies, there are always kind people there to help them through those troubles. But that theme is definitely explored a lot better in Curse of the Cat People with a much, much better young actress. Yeah. But again, she's still better yeah. than Fetty's. Right. I wasn't as, as irritated as, as you were by the plot, Annette. I, I guess because it's not that long a movie and I just was like, fine. <laughs> and maybe rewatching it, it would, I would like child actors are hard <laughs> so maybe rewatching it i would like let it let it go and sort of get carried more away with the main sort of storyline but it that kept taking me out of the main storyline so is there anything else y'all want to discuss about this film anything you haven't brought up yet well only because we talked about the sad demise of the dog we need to talk about boris karloff's cat uh, who, that cat is an yeah. accessory to murder. Absolutely, because the, the cat witnesses and cheers on Boris Karloff as he's killing Bela Lugosi. So <laughs> I believe the cat's name is Brother. Um, excellent performance yes, it is. by a cat. Yes, I, like, I love the part where after Karloff has murdered Lugosi, Brother goes and sniffed it, sniffs at Lugosi's hand like, does this dead guy have any treats for me? <laughs> no. Oh, well, to hell with him. <laughs> because cats are cats. Later, when, when McFarlane is, is fighting with John Gray, and I love how protracted that fight is. It's not quick. It's not clean. It's messy. It's ugly. It takes a long time. There are reversals and back and forths. And, and when McFarlane finally does gain the upper hand, even though it's done in shadow, it's ugly. 
And but brother is there being like, no, don't murder Boris Karloff. And I'm like, brother, come on. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I actually really I forgot about to mention that scene because it is great because Karloff really seems to have the upper hand at the beginning. And I think also because of what you've seen Karloff do for the rest of the movie and the fact that he's a big man, you sort of think, well, and I can't remember. I don't think Toddy is drunk at that point, but he might be. I can't remember. But it seems he's like Karloff so is harsh. always going to. He's gonna. He's always gonna have the upper hand because Karloff has, he he has motivation and he's also just he's he's done this before, but but Tati also has motivation too because by the time he comes to, you know he he intends to kill Karloff. He's in a fury. He's like, look, I, you're ruining my life, dude. We got to get rid. And I'm sort of surprised it hadn't happened before. But yeah, you're right. That fight is protracted. The noises of the fight are the fight. There's not a lot. Of, there's not score to get in the way of it. It's all it's all happening in shadow. You don't really know how it's going to come out because, as I say, Karloff is sort of on top to begin, and it's 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 suspenseful. And Karloff relents and dooms himself ultimately because, in that weird, twisted way, I don't. He loves. Toddy or he loves how tormenting Toddy makes him feel and right? he doesn't want to give that up and that ultimately lets Toddy get the upper hand and kill him and you know you don't exactly shed tears for Karloff but it is kind of weirdly poignant how he's begging Toddy yeah. don't, don't, make, me kill don't you. make me kill you so that I can keep on torturing you because I need that to feel alive right it's it's fascinating he wins in the end though because he gets killed but then he also drives Toddy to his Good grave. <laughs> so it's like he continues to torment him even after he's dead. So uh, I feel like Gray wins in the end. I mean, but, they're both but sadly dead, for brother. I don't wins. think he's going to end up with Fetus and the mother and the little no longer wheelchair bound girl in a happy little home, I think. Cats are really smart yeah. and independent, and there's no way a cat would sit by their mother's grave forever. <laughs> Cats He'll got just, like, stuff like, to do and make his own way. And have brother his own stowed away with the horse. I'm not there worried. Brother yeah. stowed away with the horse when yeah. McFarlane took the horse to be sold, and like whoever buys the horse is like, "Oh, hey, free cat!" Right. And exactly. brother goes on to be an accessory to many more murders, for all we know. And they all lived happily ever after. And I, I just wanted to say, I love. <laughs> You can tell they didn't have a lot of move, uh, of money for this movie. You know, they, they they make the best of it by reusing sets. I think that the street sets are from like a production of A Tale of Two Cities. Um, but they try to still have the right details where they can, including if you look closely at Gray's costume, you can see grease stains on his shirt front from nice. where he was sloppily eating in taverns. It's just a little detail that helps, especially against the immaculate dress of Henry Danielle, helps reinforce those class differences that run all the way through the film. Yeah, and just to talk about Boris's performance a little bit, just one more note. He, he's clearly occupying a working class space, but, but Karloff doesn't make it. It's not a, I don't know if you've seen any movies with Paul Muni, who was an actor of the early 30s and was sort of known for big, hammy, scenery-chewing performances. And he would play like a Polish-born American mine worker. And he would just like, I am playing someone from the working class. And that happened a lot in this era. And Karloff, who can absolutely play, he could have played the Henry Daniel part or he could have played any number of gentleman parts. Uh, but Karloff can can absolutely, without breaking a sweat and without chewing any scenery, 
play that working class character and evoke the class from which he comes, but also, you know, do the things he needs to do in, in a way that, that isn't hammy. And I love it. Yeah. I think it's because he plays the emotions. He doesn't worry about the outward exactly, affectations, you're right. but he plays that that resentment and that rage and that feeling of being small and beaten down. It is if you haven't seen Boris Karloff act before, if you only think of him as Frankenstein clomping around under a lot of makeup, this performance is a revelation. This performance would still work if you pulled it out of this film and dropped it in a modern film. It is this mesmerizing blend of smarm, malice, and seething, bone-deep resentment that just you can't take your eyes off a single moment that he's on screen. Agreed. I think, I think because I was like, I going in and my expectations and going in with such a strong Burke and Hare perspective, and like, you're all podcast listeners out there, so you probably know they come up a lot on different podcasts and and so on. So I think, and I wonder if it's because of when this film is made and their sort of like perspective and take on what would be there and what my expectations would be is I was a little bit missing, like, and I think that's part of why that, that storyline irritated me, but I was a little bit missing sort of like the what motivated them to become the body snatchers. And that was sort of a plot that took place before the movie. And sort of like, what was that descent to go from uh, like the, the, you know, finding a body, delivering a body to stealing a body to murdering. And um, it was just such a different perspective. And I think it might be a movie I need to watch again, sort of with the right expectations. Cause I think like all of these things around, especially Karloff and Toddy, the guy who played Toddy uh, McConnell, Henry Danielle, his name, but Danielle, Danielle. But anyways, the two of them are fantastic. And there is a lot of really great creepy elements in that. But it's like, I think because of what I was expecting, um, I was just expecting it to be a little bit different. And so then I need to like sit back and watch this again and uh, watch it for what it is instead of what I was expecting, if that makes sense. I would highly recommend that you just, if you like movies, look for Val Luton's films. My personal favorites, they're, they're, they're <laughs> all good to some degree or another, but my personal favorites are Cat People, which is just probably one of the scariest movies he made and beautiful, haunting, super creepy. Uh, Curse of the Cat People, which is both an incredibly faithful sequel and yet like nothing you're ever expecting. Um, this movie is my favorite of the three he made with Karloff, but there's also Isle of the Dead and Bedlam, uh, where Karloff plays the sinister warden of a mental hospital. And um, one I just saw recently, the last film Luton never made, Apache Drums. It is a color Western that he made for Universal as he was trying to mount a comeback before he died way too young in his early 50s of a heart attack. Um, but it is an incredible Western with the same kind of psychological depth, strong performances, interesting writing that you expect from Luton, plus some really clever budget saving, but really dynamic visuals that you won't soon forget. It's a cut above your standard 1950s Western, and it's actually become one of my favorite Westerns. Um, I actually, as weird as it is, just to to add to the Val Luton love, uh, I liked uh, I, I like a I walk with a zombie 
Is that the name of it? That's right, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. I like I Walk With a Zombie a lot because it is so weird and so unexpected, and it's a real messy movie, but there's so much going on in that movie. And and uh, to, to refer back again to Adam's uh, Val Luton podcast, which is, is quite an epic, and again, I'll put it in the show notes, uh, his description of the process of making that movie and all the people that worked on it is, is quite amazing. And if you just want something weird, I Walk With a Zombie is for you. Yes. Adam's podcast is fantastic. I, I It's hours and hours and yes. hours and hours. It's um, magnificently <laughs> researched. Adam has a voice that I will never have and deeply envy because it's just amazing to listen to. And I walked with a zombie. If you need like the elevator pitch, it's Jane Eyre plus voodoo zombies plus colonialism. It's <laughs> Yay. incredible. Very well, well said. Well said. <laughs> well sold. Well, I would like to thank Shelley for giving me the opportunity to be the guest host on this movie that I love. Um, I would like to thank Annette for joining me. We will see you next time on Lions, Towers, and Shields. Uh, Shelley will be back in the driver's seat. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Lion Tower Shield because S's cost extra. Thank you. Enjoy the spooky season. And if you hear a handsome cab driving by in the street, keep your doors and windows locked, lest John Gray come looking for you to supply his grisly trade. Thank you and good night. <laughs>